Welcome everyone to our Bible study series in the Gospel of Luke. My name is Chris Anderson and I'm the teacher for class A40. Our previous studies in Luke chapters 1 through 3 have set the stage for Jesus' public ministry. And today's lesson will be in chapter 4 with the story that Luke chose, with the Holy Spirit's help of course, to open this public ministry. So please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4 verses 14 to 30 and we'll be studying Jesus' visit to the synagogue in Nazareth. This is the story that Luke selected for Theophilus to begin this new section about Christ's ministry. And remember, a key focus of Luke was to communicate the story of Jesus to a Greek audience. Luke chapter 4 will emphasize four main things. The fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, God's plan of salvation that includes the Gentiles, and the Holy Spirit's involvement in the life of Jesus, as well as the foreshadowing of Israel's rejection of Jesus. But before going into the synagogue, let's begin our time together with a word of prayer. And Heavenly Father, we pray and ask your help for our time in the Word, that we would have open hearts, open minds to hear what you have to uh, say to us. We thank you so much for the gift of the Holy Scriptures. Um, for these messages and for the words of Luke that he collected for us to know more about the life of Jesus and particularly how this applies to us and what we can learn from it. And we ask your guidance today in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, over the past several weeks, we've seen Luke develop his, quote, orderly account, as he said in chapter 1, verse 4, so that Theophilus would know the certainty of the things you have been taught. These include the stories of Jesus' birth, his time in the temple as a 12-year-old, and the stories of his baptism by John, followed by the temptation in the wilderness. And Luke often, in this uh, discourse of his, makes a point of showing the Holy Spirit's involvement with phrases like, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, or he was led by the Spirit. And here in chapter 4, Jesus is returning to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So now let's begin at verse 14 in chapter 4 with a short introduction of Jesus going to the synagogue in Nazareth. Keep in mind as we go through the stories here that Nazareth, Capernaum, and the other locations mentioned in our lesson today are in regions where many Gentiles lived. So picking up here at verse 14 in chapter 4, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding region, and he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. Now, based on the narratives in the other Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and John, we know that Jesus had an extensive preaching and miracle-working ministry around Capernaum, before he returned to Nazareth, as described in today's passage. And so Luke summarizes this in the briefest of terms in verses 14 and 15, but he does include a general statement saying, he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And this general statement sets up the specific episode that Luke wants to talk about, of Jesus going to the synagogue in Nazareth. Now we will get to Capernaum later, but Luke, puts the Capernaum events on hold so that he can first answer the question for his Greek audience of who is this Jesus? 
And Luke sees in the Nazareth synagogue event the perfect opportunity to provide the answer. First, from the lips of Jesus himself, and second, from a prophecy made centuries before by the prophet Isaiah. The scene for this momentous story is set in Jesus' hometown among the people who have known him the longest, his family, his neighbors, and his friends. So here are some initial observations that we can make about this passage. Number one, the story is the starting point in Jesus' public ministry according to Luke's gospel. But it's more than just that. As noted by J.A. Fitzmaier in his commentary on Luke, quote, Luke has deliberately put this story at the beginning of the public ministry to encapsulate the entire ministry of Jesus and the reaction to it. Now, in this synagogue story, we are reminded that Luke is not writing a chronological account, but an orderly account. And we refer back to his introduction to the most excellent Theophilus as he set forth his goals in his writing of this book. A second observation, when we get to verse 16, we will see that Luke is showing Theophilus that Jesus himself was the ultimate source of Luke's writings. As Luke chapter 1 verse 4 states, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Another observation is that this particular sermon that Luke selected is very rich. It contains a prophecy of Jesus as the Messiah, and it describes the involvement of Gentiles in the plan of God, and it contains a foreshadowing of the ultimate rejection of Jesus that would lead to his death. A fourth observation regards the question, when did Jesus go to Nazareth? We can look at the other Gospels that provide us more information here. And based on the other narratives, it appears that Jesus went from his baptism by John the Baptist at the Jordan to the wilderness temptation, where he was tempted by the devil, and then he went on to Galilee, and he had a ministry for quite some time centering on Capernaum. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17 tell us, that upon hearing that John the Baptist had been imprisoned, he traveled to Nazareth and then to Capernaum in Galilee of the Gentiles where he lived for a time. And both Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus traveled throughout Galilee preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people, and also throwing out demons. And because of this, large crowds from all over Judea were following him. And notice... That's not large crowds from Capernaum or Galilee. It's from all over Judea, all over Israel. People were coming up to Galilee to learn more about Jesus. So Jesus became famous and gathered large crowds. And at some point, he went south about 20 miles or so back to his hometown in Nazareth. A fifth observation we can make is about the customs and practices in the synagogues. And we have some information about first century synagogue practice. And it tells us that it was customary for visiting rabbis to be given an opportunity to read from scripture and provide a homily or a commentary. And many commentators note that it was typical for the rabbi or synagogue ruler to stand to read the scripture and then to sit while giving the sermon or exposition. One commentator noted that there were typically two scripture readings every Sabbath, the first reading from the Torah by the rabbi or ruler of the synagogue, and the second was a reading from the prophets that would be read by a member of the congregation. And it is this second reading that comes from the prophets that seems to be in view today uh, where Jesus will be reading. 
Now, Jesus has handed the scroll, and Jesus is seen to specifically select the passage he will read, a passage with messianic meaning. And we are seeing here Jesus' messianic consciousness as he begins his ministry. This passage also highlights Luke's emphasis of Jesus as a teacher. The final observation we'll make before we move on to verses 18 and following uh, has to do with the scroll of Isaiah. Uh, if you notice from your Bibles, Isaiah is a pretty big book, has 66 chapters. In today's passage, we're going to come across chapter 61 as Jesus reads from it. Now, in 1947, you probably have all heard the story of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, that's when the, the first cave uh, hiding all the ancient parchments were discovered at Qumran on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea. After years of looking for additional caves and finding more uh, hidden away uh, documents, they found fragments from every book in the Old Testament except Esther. But the only complete book that has ever been found is a scroll of the book of Isaiah. This particular scroll consists of 17 sheets of parchment stitched together and wound up on scrolls such that the total length of this document is 24 feet. So with that little piece of trivia, let's move on to verse 18 with Jesus holding this Isaiah scroll in his hands. And Jesus unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the people in the synagogue were intently directed at him. Now he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all the people were speaking well of him and admiring the gracious words which were coming from his lips. And yet they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? Let's think briefly just about what Luke is telling us when he writes at the baptism in Luke chapter 3 that the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form. And then at the beginning of chapter 4, that Jesus returned from the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit. And then as we just read in verse 14, that he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. We see here that Luke is placing a deliberate emphasis on the Holy Spirit's involvement and empowerment in Jesus' ministry. It's mentioned 15 times throughout his gospel. And Jesus' ministry only began after the Spirit's anointing at the Jordan River. And the Spirit's descending on Jesus reminds us that the word Messiah means anointed one. So in these previous passages, Luke has carefully set up the connection between the recent events about Jesus and this passage from Isaiah 61, where the common thread is the direct involvement of the Holy Spirit. Now, this anointing or filling and empowerment of the Spirit is followed by several redemptive acts described in verses 18 and 19 that the Anointed One will do. First, He will bring good news to the poor and the humble. He will proclaim release to the captives and sight to the blind. He will set free the oppressed and declare the favorable year of the Lord. 
Now let's remember just a little bit about what these key words mean. They're very rich in meaning. Poor includes not just those who have no money, but particularly those who are in low status in the society or who are spiritually poor. It includes the humble and lowly who place their hope in God. The words release or freedom in Luke's gospel and the book of Acts means forgiveness from sin. And so in the phrase, he set free the oppressed, we see that Jesus will also set us free, give us freedom from the great oppressor, Satan. Then we see the word sight to the blind, and this brings to mind several healings of Jesus, as well as Paul's use of blindness to refer to the darkness from which Jesus, the light of the world, will restore spiritual sight. And finally, the words favorable year of the Lord. And this is a synonym for the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, we, as we consider to consider this sermon in the Nazareth synagogue, we can see three of the major themes of, God, of Luke's gospel. First, God's sovereign rule over history, particularly as evidenced by the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Secondly, Jesus's messiahship and his mission. And thirdly, God's concern for sinners, outcasts, the sick, and the poor of society. Now, as noted earlier, according to the custom of the day, Jesus has read from the scroll, but now he sits down, and every eye is on him, and he makes this very astonishing announcement. Today, he says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, you may have heard some people say that this is the shortest sermon in the Bible, However, I think we might want to take a closer look at that claim. So let's look at some of the words here. Jesus began to say, and then it continues with the people's response where Luke writes, all the people were speaking well of him and admiring the gracious words which were coming from his lips. So it is better to think of this quotation, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, as a summary or as the primary theme of Jesus' teaching in the synagogue that morning. Regarding these words, Robert Stein writes that an important means by which Luke sought to bring assurance to his readers was through demonstrating that the things that had taken place in the experiences of Jesus and later in the Church of Acts were the fulfillment of prophecy. Luke, in fact, referred to these things in his prologue as, quote, the things that have been fulfilled among us, in Luke chapter 1, verse 1. In no other gospel, Mr. Sign writes, not even in Matthew do we find so many references and allusions to how the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus fulfilled the scriptures. So by quoting Isaiah, we see that Jesus' affirmation of and identification with Isaiah's prophecy would have Underline for Luke's Greek audience just some of the great reasons why Jesus' message was indeed good news. But now we need to see what happens in verse 22. Here we come to a description of the reactions of the people in the synagogue. Well, how did they initially react to Jesus? They were speaking well of him. They were admiring his gracious words. And this phrase, admiring the gracious words which were coming from his lips, indicates that the people were pleased with Jesus' teaching concerning God's grace rather than admiring his eloquence. Now, Jesus may have been a fabulous speaker, 
But what's going on here is they are admiring the content more than the delivery. And as you know, as by reading back there at what the passage from Isaiah says, it is a wonderful statement about the mercies of God. And so the people were enjoying having Jesus remind them of all the great things that God has promised to them. Then there's another word that we see, the word yet. They were wondering about who the son of Joseph was. And let's look at a couple of these words that, that pop up here, the word amazing and the word yet, uh, just in uh, a couple more little details about them. Uh, the Greek word for amazed or marveling or admiring is that same word that we saw a few weeks ago in the Christmas story where the shepherds uh, heard the announcement of the baby Jesus from the angels and then they were told to go to, uh, go to Bethlehem and tell everyone about it. And so they do that. And all who heard it were amazed about the things which they were told by the shepherds. That's the same word that the people in the synagogue were amazed about Jesus' teaching. This means to wonder or to be filled with wonder or admiration or astonishment. Now, the thing to keep in mind here, it's, it's easy just to think about amazement in a positive sense, but it also can be used in a negative sense. Uh, an example of its positive use would be, I am amazed at how beautiful your garden looks. That would be a compliment to anyone. But we also know it can be used negatively, such as, it's amazing that he can put two coherent thoughts together. But most of our commentators had the view, however, that the people were viewing Jesus in a very favorable way until we get to that word yet. That's the New American Standards version here in the Holman Christian Standard. Some other translations simply read, and they said. But the word yet seems to be packed with some additional meaning. It could have the idea that they were gathering their thoughts and as they listened to Jesus, they began to have questions. And so now the Living Translation, uh, New Living Translation puts it this way. How can, it, how can this be, they asked? Isn't this Joseph's son? So we can see perhaps a little transition now in the great favor the people felt for Jesus. And now a few minutes are passing and perhaps some changes are happening. Wonderment were a pleasant surprise. And I think it's fair to say that both senses were on display that day in the synagogue. Now Jesus is aware of the questions in the congregation's mind. And let's now continue with verses 23 to 30. And Jesus said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. All the miracles that we heard were done in Capernaum. Do them here in your hometown as well. But Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a severe famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many with leprosy in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and brought him to the crest of the hill on which their city had been built so that they could throw him down from the cliff. But he passed through their midst and went on his way. There's an interesting word in verse 24, the word truly in the New American Standard or the truth in your New International Version. 
This is the Greek word, amen. It's not the word for truth. Uh, and in the, in the New Testament, only Jews, Jesus uses this phrase when he says things like, I tell you truthfully, or I tell you amen. Or if you remember from your King James versions of many years ago, verily, verily, I say unto you. And this word amen in the Greek comes from the Hebrew word amen, meaning to show oneself dependable. Its general meaning in the New Testament is most certainly, or truly, or so be it. And the important thing to remember about amen is that this word conveys a strong affirmation of what is being said. So it would be often attached to the end of a sentence, perhaps at the end of one of our prayers. But Jesus often puts it at the first part of his sentence to give it extra emphasis. And there's an interesting side note here. It's not really perhaps relevant to our passage, but in Revelations chapter 3, verse 14, Christ calls himself the Amen, the faithful and true witness. So here in our Nazareth synagogue this morning, the Sabbath day, we see Jesus, the Alpha, the Omega, and the Amen. Now after observing in verse 22 that some of the congregation had questions or doubts or objections, what did Jesus say next? Well, he began to answer the people's questions with two proverbs. Now these are not scriptural proverbs, but common proverbs found in many, many cultures. So what does this first proverb mean, physician, heal thyself? Well, I used to think it was a, 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 a proverb about hypocrisy, like similar to the one, remove the log from your eye, but, but I was wrong. In further uh, reviewing these things, I found that this uh, proverb, physician, heal thyself, is connected to the concept of skepticism or a demand for proof, such as, before I let you treat my illness, show me that you're a real doctor. And this has been spread throughout many parts of the world, a, common, a commonality in this uh, proverb. And we find a Greek version in the writings of Euripides, where he says, a physician for others, but himself teeming with sores. And this clearly relates to Jesus's fame in Capernaum as a miracle worker. And Jesus makes this point clear in verse 23, as he gives voice to the people's thoughts, all the miracles that we heard were done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Perhaps the people in the synagogue, or at least some of them, found the stories from Capernaum a bit hard to believe, a bit fantastic. So they were asking for confirmation, a miraculous sign. And we can see here that the Jews had a reputation just like Missouri, being a show-me state. Paul says, about, says this in 1 Corinthians 1.22, For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. And Jesus himself, in replying to the Pharisees and scribes in Matthew chapter 12, said, An evil and adulterous generation craves a sign, and so no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. Well, now let's look at the second proverb and how Jesus applies it to his audience. Jesus says, No prophet is welcome in his hometown. In other words, it's hard to get respect from those you know only too well. A closely related saying is, familiarity breeds contempt. Now Matthew's gospel uh, gives us a little more color to this episode, or it's possible some people think it's a related story of another episode in a synagogue. In chapter 13 of Matthew, he says, And Jesus came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue, with the result that they were astonished. 
and said, Where did this man acquire this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is his mother not called Mary? And his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man acquire all these things? And they took offense at him. Now Jesus connects the second proverb about a prophet not being welcome in his hometown with two stories of the Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And he brings out into the open what the real issue is, that bringing the gospel to the Gentiles was highly offensive to the Jews. Jesus reminds the people, first with Elijah, that he was rejected by King Ahab, Jezebel, and the Baal prophets and worshipers who refused to repent. So in 1 Kings chapter 17, we see that Elijah ministered to a Gentile Canaanite widow in the region of Sidon, up in Phoenicia. Jesus then reminds the people about the Elisha story in 2 Kings chapter 3. Here, Elisha is also seen as ministering to Gentiles, specifically in his healing from leprosy of the Syrian general Naaman. One commentator writes, Luke may have had a special interest in Elijah and Elisha because of their ministry to the Gentiles. Again, just reinforcing this, this idea that Luke the Gentile had a, had a mission to communicate the gospel to Gentiles, to Greek speakers in his world of the day. And so Jesus identifies the real problem is that Nazareth would not accept him in the sense of receiving or embracing or believing him. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament speak of this elsewhere. In Isaiah 53, it says, He was despised and rejected by men. And the first chapter of John says, He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. I even found a Jewish commentator who said, The rejection of Jesus is not prompted by xenophobia. It is prompted by Jesus' refusal to provide his hometown with messianic blessings. Jesus also shows us in this story that a consequence of a failure to believe was that God's blessing would be sent to someone else. Luke here is clearly highlighting here one of his great thematic truths, that the Old Testament and Jesus both view Gentiles as recipients of God's grace, that God's salvation was not limited to Israel, and the Elijah and Elisha stories foreshadow both Jesus' ministry to Jews and Gentiles as well as Paul's mission to the Gentiles that Luke will cover in more detail in the book of Acts. And so we now see Jesus' friends and neighbors turning on him with rage because of this insult of dragging the Gentiles into the gospel plan of God. Warren Wiersbe explains the dramatic change of the people's view when he writes, At first they admired the way he taught, but it didn't take long for their admiration to turn into antagonism. Why? Because Jesus began to remind them of God's goodness to the Gentiles. The prophet Elijah bypassed all the Jewish widows and helped a Gentile widow in Sidon. And his successor Elisha healed a Gentile leper from Syria. Our Lord's message of grace was a blow to the proud Jewish exclusivism of the congregation, and they would not repent. Imagine, they thought, this hometown boy saying that the Jews had to be saved by grace just like pagan Gentiles? The very thought. The congregation was so angry they took action to kill Jesus. About this, St. Augustine writes, They love truth when it enlightens them, but they hate truth when it accuses them. 
Here again we see how important this story was to Luke, himself a Gentile, as he wrote his gospel for his Gentile friend, Theophilus. Finally, we can observe in the congregation's wrath why they threw Jesus out of the synagogue and entirely out of town, indicating that they meant to kill him. This foreshadows the coming rejection by all of Israel and also a foreshadowing that the specter of death at the hands of the Jews would follow Jesus everywhere he went in his ministry. So in conclusion, I'd like to look back over the first three or four chapters of Luke and look at six things that he foreshadows for us. The first thing to notice here is Jesus' temple visit at 12 years of age foreshadows his future greatness, his future teaching mission, and his awareness of his unique relationship with God the Father. Secondly, the baptism story of Jesus at the River Jordan with John the Baptist foreshadows the way of salvation through death into new life. Third, Jesus' victory in the wilderness temptation foreshadows his ultimate victory over Satan at the resurrection. The next one is Jesus' rejection at the synagogue that we just read about. And this foreshadows his complete rejection by mankind, as well as the fate of all true prophets at the cross. Similarly, the proverb, Physician, heal yourself, foreshadows the insults to be thrown at Jesus on the cross, including, He saved others. He cannot save himself. And lastly, the Old Testament stories of Elijah and Elisha and Israel's rejection of the Messiah foreshadow God's mission to the Gentiles. So as we close in prayer today, some things we can consider and ponder from today's passages are, do I receive or embrace Jesus in all things? Or are there some aspects of following Jesus that bother me or that I find offensive or that I reject? With these in mind, let's close with a word of prayer and thank the Lord for our time today in the Gospel of Luke. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the gift of the Holy Scriptures. We thank you particularly for chapter 4 of Luke. We thank you for this story that has been saved for us about your son Jesus coming to the synagogue and claiming the fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah chapter 61 and how thrilling that is, and how it opens up to us as Gentiles the promises, of the promise, your promises of um, salvation about our future with you. It's a very glorious chapter, and we thank you for it and the encouragement it brings. But we also want to remember that you honor the poor and the humble of spirit. We want to remember that there may be places in our life where we are just not whole hog embracing Jesus and his gospel that we're holding something back. And we pray you will illuminate these to our hearts and minds and that you will cause us to repent and help us to just go after Jesus more fully every day. Thank you again for our time together today. I ask your blessing on everyone listening. In Jesus' name, amen.